Masechet Ketubot Daf Peh. We're discussing this type of partnership between a husband and wife when you have land, Nichseh Melog, that the wife brings in as part of her dowry, and or she might have inherited the money. And so she owns, the, she keeps the title of the land, but during the marriage, it's the husband that works the land and keeps the produce from the land and uh, that produce he will use for the upkeep of the household and to feed everyone and so how do exactly do we share the expenses that are put into the land so here we go Mishnah. a husband who spends uh, expenses on the wife's property. He goes and he buys seeds and fertilizer, a tractor. He may spend a lot of money. And it's not it's not always uh, uh, sure how much it's going to actually produce. So if he's had a lot of expenses, but the land produced only a little, just uh, you know, bad luck, or the other way around, maybe he only spent a little bit on it, but it was a good year and good rain and good luck, and he was able to get a lot of produce out of it. So the law is that whatever he spent, he spent. Whatever he consumed, he consumed. When it says ate here, it doesn't mean literally that he's eating all the olives from it. It means that he's consuming it uh, and taking it and selling it or doing whatever he wants with it. And so um, the husband takes basically all of the risk and all of the reward. And so what, if, he, if he spent more and uh, took in less, it's his loss. If he spent a little and got a good crop, then it's his gain, and none of that gain or loss will be transferred over to the wife at the end of the of the marriage. However, if he spent money but did not eat any of it, and they got divorced right then, so maybe he spent a lot of money on seeds and fertilizer in the beginning of the season to plant things, and then they got divorced before anything grew, or before he harvested, before he got to actually take any of the fruit and enjoy them. In that case, uh, so she's getting the land back, he can come and say, listen, on this season, I spent $1,000. And so he can swear that he spent those $1,000, and he can uh, collect that uh, from the wife's property and as they get divorced. Okay, so now we're going to start for the question of vekama kim'ah. How much is a little that even, it says even if he um, took a little bit, then already he, it means he took, uh, he took any, whatever amount he took, even if it's a small amount, then that's already considered that he benefited from the property. And even if they get divorced after that, uh, we do not apply this law that he could just swear and take his expenses. Uh, so how much is, uh, is that little that would be the minimum threshold after which we said, after which we say, since he had that small benefit, so then all the expenses that he put in, he cannot take back. What is that amount? Even one dried fig. As long as he ate it in a, an honorable way. So he was sitting down and ate it as part of a meal. If he was just walking in the field and happened to snatch one off and eat it like a snack, that's not considered one. That's not considered a real benefit. But once he had one as a meal, then that's it. Even though uh, you know the, the rest of it was not ready, he or did he did not consume the rest of it, and then they get divorced. It doesn't matter. He had that little bit of benefit, 
that already accounts for the expenses that he put in, he cannot take back out. But a second opinion says, even a whole bunch of dates that he ate, that is still a little bit, has to be more than a bunch of dates. Question, what about a a cake made of of dried dates that will smash together, which is not as fancy as uh, having uh, the you know fresh dates or that fig uh, is that considered uh, more than the, the minimum threshold? Take oh, that we leave that unresolved. All right, all those cases were where he eats it in a proper, dignified way as part of a meal. But what is the minimum threshold if he does not eat it in a dignified way? May if all day long, all all month long, he's going and eating little snacks uh, in the middle of the field. There's got to be some minimum threshold. For that type of consuming, so there's two Amoraim in Eretz Israel. One said an Isar's worth, a, a, a monetary amount, and one said a dinar's worth. A dinar is worth 24 times an Isar. So there is a big difference between these two opinions. So that amount, even eaten in a casual way would satisfy the minimum and once he eats eats that much consumes that much then all expenses that he put into the uh, into the into the field he loses he cannot recoup them the judge of Pumpedita ruled as follows they testify that Ravi Huda um, had a had a case with bundles of branches in other words the husband didn't take actual fruit but took some branches and used them to feed his animals and Ravi Huda said that is considered the consuming of property uh, of her fruits, even though it's not actual fruit. That is um, also uh, meets the minimum threshold, even though they're only branches. And so he got benefit. Once he gets even that little bit of benefit, he cannot recoup his expenses. And Rav Yudah follows his opinion in a similar law that if a person is um, sitting on some land uh, that he claims title to and he needs to get a chazaka, uh, which means he has to be there for three years continuously without anyone protesting, that is considered proof that he owns it. Now, what if um, during that year, one of those years of chazaka, uh, he eats, he, he consumes fruit that is actually prohibited from him, for him, like if it's orla or shivi'it or kil'ayim. He says even though it's prohibited and he wasn't supposed to consume that, still it's called a chazaka. The reason is because he is allowed to benefit from branches. Even during a shivi'it year, he can come and take the branches. There's no prohibition on that. And so since there is a permit, since the branches are permitted, that is sufficient. So just like branches are sufficient to be considered using a field as a chazaka, so too uh, taking branches is considered usage with regard to the law that his um, that this is this meets the minimum requirement of usage. And therefore, since he consumed some of it, even though it's only a little, nevertheless, all of his expenses um, are gone. He can't he can't get them back.
אמר רב יעקב, אמר רב חיסטה, מוסיא עושות על נכסי אשתו קטנה, כמוסיא על נכסי אחר דמה. Uh, so רב יעקב said, someone who uh, puts expenditures for the property of his wife, who's a minor, right? So he married a minor, and that, mean, that means, you know, she was orphaned, and her mother or brother married her off. In that case, she can the, uh, come and refuse the marriage uh, anytime while she's a minor. So here the problem is the husband knows that she might refuse at any time. So he, now she brings in some, a field into, into the marriage. Now he doesn't want to put a lot of expense and build a, you know, build a fence and, and buy lots of things to improve the land because he's going to put all that money in and then she might just refuse and then, and then take the field back with her and he'll lose out. So therefore, Rav Chista rules that if it's a minor wife, the, the, the law is different. We want to protect the husband so that he'll be more willing to treat the land well. And so we treat it like uh, someone else's property. There's a law that if I would go into uh, your property, a random person's property, and even without his agreement, I go and put and, and benefit it, benefit that property, that person still does have to pay for whatever good thing I did. This is like the window washers. You remember when at a stoplight in New York, they would wash your windows without you asking them, and then they would demand payment. So the point here is that um, the husband, whatever he puts in to his minor wife's property, he can still demand payment for it. The rabbis made a takana, uh, an ordinance, so that he will not cause the land to depreciate. You see, if he, if he, if he thinks that she might refuse any time, he still wants to get benefit from the field, he's just going to reap as much from the field as he can. And that, in a way, that's detrimental to the field. Fields, sometimes they need to be uh, uh, fertilized properly or rest properly for the long-term benefit. And he's just going to go for the short-term benefit that will ruin the field. And so that's not good for her, not good for their, their long-term relationship. And so therefore, we tell, we tell them, listen, treat the field nicely, put expenses in it, uh, as if you're going to stay married, if in the end she refuses him, then he can, he can still recoup those expenses. And now an interesting story of a wife who got an inheritance of 400 zoos. The problem is that it was in a faraway place in Bavel called Bechozai. Here's a map. Bechozai is all the way here. And uh, the Amoraim lived in Sura, Pumpedita. So you see, this was a very far um, travel distance uh, to go to, to collect the money. So uh, her husband went and collected it. Azil Gabra, Apek, Shitmea. But the travel expenses ended up being 600 zoos, more than the actual amount that it was worth. There's like, you know, sometimes you have a you know, $40 item that you want to uh, um, return to a mall in New Jersey. And you drive from New York to New Jersey and, you know, realize that this, you're spending more on the gas and tolls than the item that you're returning itself. It's just not worth it. So, uh, you know, he made this trip. Now, he does, he's doing it on behalf of his wife. So the expenses he's putting in, that's the 600 um, this would be the same as expenses he would put into a field. The, the, the reward that he is reaping is, uh, is the 400 
um, um, uh, zoos of money of in her inheritance. So in the end, there's a net loss. So who should who should bear this loss? So he did go and come back, and he and he had the four hundred uh, zoos. So if we just leave it at that. Well, then he's bringing back the 400, but he can claim those expenses and, uh, and, you know, and recoup that 200 because he doesn't touch and touch any of the, of the, of the 400. Let's assume that they get divorced right after. So this would be like the case of the Mishnah where he puts in money, but had no benefit from it, in which case he can recoup his expenses. So that would be the law if he didn't touch the money at all. But here's the complication. While he was on his way, he spent the 600 and he needed one more zoos. He was just short for the, for the uh, plane ticket uh, to get back. And so he took one zoos, took slash borrowed one zoos from that inheritance money. And now, he came before Rabbi Amer for a ruling. Rabbi Amer applied the first clause of the Mishnah that since he benefited, he took some of the some of her money. So now, so whatever he spent on expenses is gone, and whatever he took, he took. So he spent the six hundred. He took the four. He took the one, and that's it. He's out his six hundred. He cannot recollect it. Um, that's the law. That's the same as in the, if it was land. Okay, that's what Rabbi Ameh said. But then, the rabbis, other rabbis there, explained to Rabbi Ameh, says, no, you have to, we have to clarify this case. That law of the Mishnah only applies when the husband consumes some of the produce, the income from the wife's property. But this inheritance is itself the principle. And so it doesn't apply if he just borrows some of the principle, if, you know, somehow he had, he needed to uh, take some of this land and lend it to someone, something like that, so it would be a different law. And so there actually, it's just part of the expenditure. He took, he borrowed this one zoos as part of his expenses to pay for getting the rest of the uh, 400 zoos. So you shouldn't treat it the same as fruits. And so therefore he answered, So Rabbi Ames says, oh, thank you for explaining the details. If so, then um, it's the same as a, a case where he, he put in expenses into a, a field and did not consume anything. And in that case, all he has to do is swear on the amount that he put in and he can uh, recoup that amount. So in fact, that one check he'll just pay back uh, to the principal and he can swear that he spent 600 on the uh, plane ticket and other other travel expenses and he'll be able to get that money back. All right, fascinating. Now, the last line of the Mishnah says that if in fact he did not consume any of the fee, any part of the field, um, and uh, so he put in expenses, then they get divorced, and now there's all uh, things that the fruit, the land will produce. Uh, he just, he, um, uh, that all that, and all that benefit will go to the wife. So he swears the amount that he put in, and he can take that amount uh, from her. Uh, from her, her whatever she is taking out of the marriage. Amar Rabbi Aseh. 
והוא שיש שבח כנגד הוסאה. So the Bi'asen says an ambiguous statement. He says this uh, is true that he swears and take his exp- takes his expenses as long as the, en- the uh, enhancement to the property corresponds to the expense. So there's two possible ways to interpret this, one for his benefit and one for his detriment. Amar Abaye interpreted the statement of Rabbi Aser for the benefit of the husband, uh, that if the enhancement is more than what he put in, he put in $100 uh, into the field, and then they got divorced, and it turns out that the field then produces $1,000. Well, for sure, he's only going to get 100 um, because they divorced before he um, uh, was able to enjoy any of its fruits. But the leniency that Rabbi Aseh is saying is that um, because the she's going to benefit more with uh, all the produce that she will enjoy, he does not have to swear. He can take the $100, uh, he can collect the $100 that he put into it, and without a swear, because he's not really taking anything, she's getting so much more. Uh, that's one interpretation. So Rava says, no, this is not a good plan because then he can deceive her because he's not going to make us have to swear. So when people don't have to swear, they're more likely to uh, lie, uh, not swearing anyway. And so if he knows that the produce the um, enhancement to the field is a thousand he can go and just do a dollar less he can say I spent 9.99 and he'll be able to collect that 9.99 as his expenses without having to swear so this is not a good system we always, we always want to make him swear to keep people in check so that they're telling the truth Rava rather explains it the other way, Rava says statement, uh, to his detriment, that if the expenses were more than what the enhancement, he put in $1,000 into it and ended up producing only $100. So he can't go and collect the $1,000 in that case, although from a simple reading of the Mishnah, it would seem like he can collect whatever it is that he put in because he didn't benefit from it. But Rabbi says, saying, no, he can only collect the, um, the, the, the smaller of the two amounts, only the $100. Um, uh, so he only, gets the, um, he only gets that shevach, and he has to make an oath as well. Uh, so that is the second interpretation. Okay, Ibaya lehu. Question to the rabbis. The husband, while he was while they're married and he's in charge, he doesn't want to go and sit and work the land himself. He has, um, you know, he doesn't like doing that, or he has other things to do. So he, he hires sharecroppers. Sharecroppers will work the land. They take a share, and then the rest the husband gets and then uses for. Uh, whatever he wants in the, for, for feeding the household. And, and then they get divorced in the middle uh, before the sharecroppers get to finish working the land and, and taking their share. So here's the question. Do we say that the sharecroppers, they are working for the husband and with that intention of only working for the husband? Therefore, since now the, the husband is kicked out, is, leaves the field because they got divorced, so too, these are his sharecroppers and that's it. Their, their term is over. 
and so they lose out. They put in, they put work into it, and they're not going to get anything out of it. And you know that's just part of the deal. Uh, you know they have to know that that risk is possible that they they got, might get divorced. So do we say that? Or do we say that they're intending to work the land, the land as it stands, and the land is still here, it just now is under a different ownership. I mean, she always owned it, but different control. And so they were working for him because he had control. And now that he's out of the picture, so they continue working for her. But they still have a right to uh, work the land and reap the benefit that was coming to them? That is the question. Matkif la rava bar rahanan maishna mahayore letoch sedech habero un tata shelo bershut shamin lo viado ala tachtona. So rava uh, objects to the whole uh, uh, question itself. This is how would this be any different from um, remember that case of, uh, before when I go into your field without you asking me and I go and I build the fans and I, I benefit from it like the window washers. Uh, where right, I go and I, I plan things without your permission, and nevertheless, you have to pay me. Now, and when you do pay me, it's true that I'm always going to be at the disadvantage. Uh, disadvantage. You'll have to pay me the lesser amount of my expenses versus and or and or uh, the enhancements of the property because this was unauthorized. So I can't come and say, hey, I put in this this much money, and if it didn't benefit you that much money, so you don't have to pay. So that's true. But still, you have to pay me something. And so this should be at least as good. In other words, even if the sharecroppers are only working for the husband and uh, the husband now is out of the picture, nevertheless, the wife should have to pay the sharecroppers at least that amount as if a stranger came and started working on her land and planting things that she would, in fact, have to give them something. Uh, that's the question. And the answer is, No, in that case, when someone goes into your field, and no one's been planting your field. I go, I put some, I plant it. So then you should pay me something because I did you a favor, even though you didn't actually ask. Whereas here, the wife can say, wait a second, you didn't have to hire, she can tell her husband, you didn't have to hire sharecroppers. The husband himself, he's an able body. He could have worked. And if he put in the work into it, then she would not have to pay anybody. And so the sharecroppers are only doing the husband a favor, not really doing the wife a favor, right? The wife actually, that's, her, that's the whole point of this deal in the marriage. She brings in the field. He is responsible for working it and he has, gets the benefit of uh, taking what it produces. So that really, that could have been the, that should have been, it could have been the deal and he could have done the work. And then once he left, so then he would leave and she would enjoy the profits. So therefore she could say, no, I never wanted any sharecroppers. Sharecroppers have not no benefit to me and therefore I'm not paying them anything. Okay, so now actually we restore the question. There are really two sides to this question. Okay, my have Allah. So what's the answer? 
Ama Ravuna bile de Rabbi Yoshua hazenen i bal arisu istelik le baal istelik istelik lehu. It depends if the husband himself is a sharecropper. In other words, he knows he's a farmer. He knows how to work the land himself. He could be, he's a, in a way, a type of sharecropper and that he doesn't own the land, although he takes, keeps all of it if it's of his profits. A uh, sharecropper only takes part of it. But the point is, if the husband himself is capable of working the land, then she will be right and she will say, listen, I was depending on my husband uh, uh, working the land and he decided to farm it out to other sharecroppers. I don't, once if my husband leaves, they leave too. I'm not giving them anything, just as I would not have to give my husband anything. But, but if the husband is not a farmer, he's a merchant, he's a tailor, he wouldn't be able to work the land even if he tried. Uh, in that case, the land needed the sharecroppers and so even when the husband was there it would need the sharecroppers so without the husband it also needs the sharecroppers sharecroppers did benefit the wife and therefore the wife would have to keep them and pay them um, at least that minimal amount of the lesser amount of the expenses versus the um, the the produce. Okay, next question. So the wife again brings in land into the marriage. He has rights to anything that the land produces. The husband says, I don't want to work the land. I'm going to sell the land to someone else, not the title. I'm going to sell the produce of the land to someone else. Uh, and then that third party, they'll be responsible to work the land and produce it. Is he allowed to do that? Do we say on the one hand that whatever belongs to the husband, he can he, uh, transfer to others. He has a right to it. So he has a right. He can do anything he wants. This is like, you know, if I rent uh, in a, an apartment in Manhattan and then I find other tenants, can I sublet the apartment uh, most apartment buildings would not allow me to but right some do i want to take my apartment uh, i'm renting and send an airbnb it right can i do that um so if i have uh, total rights to it i should be able to sublet it he should be able to do that or do we say when the rabbis made this takana that the produce goes to the husband of the his wife's land that is for a certain goal for the gain of the house, that he should take all this, whatever it, it's producing, grapes and olives, and he should bring it into the, into the home so that there's all this nice fruit in the home. And, uh, or, you know, if there's too much, he'll settle on the market and take that money and buy other things for the home. That's what it's for. But it's not for his uh, personal use to, uh, to uh, give away the rights to the land and then, you know, go take the money and use it for whatever he wants. It's for the benefit of the house. So, no, he should not be able to do that. They want to have direct benefit from the fruits of the land. So, on the one hand, we have Yehuda, the son of um, uh, Yehuda Mar, the son of Meremar, he said, in the name of Rava, what's done is done. In other words, if the husband resells his rights, 
it's a proper sale. The papa but the papa said also in the name of Rava that it's not valid. He has to use he has to work the land himself. Um, and he, or, you know, he can hire people to work the land, but he has to keep that ownership and he has to keep the produce of the land within the household for its benefit. So now we have two statements, opposite statements of Rava. So the papa defends his version of Rava by explaining that he passes. I know what Rava said. He's right. Um, my version is right because Yehuda Mor's version. He did not actually hear Rava say Masha Asui. He never made an explicit ruling about it, but rather he just derived it from something else, from a, a story. Now, when you derive a law from a story, it could be that you didn't realize that the details of that story uh, uh, and why it led to that outcome and. And so he's saying, no, they, they got a wrong conclusion because got a wrong conclusion because he was only deriving it by inference, but it was an incorrect inference. What's the story? Okay, this is a really funny case. Well, I don't know, funny for us, but not for everyone involved. Um, you had a, a certain wife who brought in two, um, uh, two maidservants into the marriage with her as part of her dowry, right? These are going to be maidservants, as we saw earlier, if a wife brings maidservants in, so they will help out with all the chores of the house and relieve her of her um, uh, many of her duties. And now this guy, he goes and marries a second wife which is probably bad enough and you know the first wife is not going to be very happy about that but now he does something else the husband takes one of the maidservants that his first wife brought in and assigns her to help out with the second wife which is his right to do the maidservants are similar to the land that she brings in even though the title belongs to the first wife, but the usage belongs to the husband. So the husband can order around the maidservants however he wants during the course of the marriage. And so he assigns one of the maidservants from his first wife to tend to the needs of the second wife. So add insult to injury to this first woman. Now he has to put up with a sada, but now she loses access to one of her maidservants that she brought in. So this first wife, Atai Lekame de Rava Savcha, and she comes to Rava screaming about this injustice done to her. Lashkachba, but Rava did not pay attention to her. Now we don't know why he didn't pay attention to her. The people that saw it said, "Ah, Rava must be ignoring her because Rava thinks that what a husband done does is done." In other words, when uh, since he has rights over his wife's land and maidservants, he can resell those rights to the land or reassign the maidservant. These are parallel cases. And so just like he was able to reassign the the maidservant from the first wife to the second wife, so too, yes, if there was a field, he'd be able to sell the um, the produce of the field, sell the rights to the produce of the field to someone else for one nice lump sum, 
and he can buy fancy cigars for himself. He, that's his right to do it. And that's why Yehuda Maud thought that Rava said Masha Sai Asui, even though he never said it. This is just an inference from his uh, being quiet. Okay, velohi, but the truth is that's not the conclusion. That's not actually why Ravah was quiet. Mishum revach beta veha ka ravach. The reason why Ravah was quiet is because this case where with the maidservant assigned to the second person, this case he was okay with. He said the husband had rights, had a right to do that because whatever the first wife brought into the marriage has to be for the benefit of the household. And household is defined as all the things that the husband owns. Now he now has two wives. And so that's, it, it still adds to the benefit of the household, even though it's taking away from one wife and assigning it to another wife is still within the household. That is fine. Whereas Rava would agree that if he used some of her benefit outside the household, if he would assign a maidservant, you know, go and help someone else's home, that would not be okay. Or if he took her land and now uh, sold the rights to her produce to a third party, that also is not benefiting the household itself. And that's why the cases are actually different. So that's why Rav Papa says, I know what Rava really thinks. I heard from directly uh, Yehuda Mod only made an inference indirectly. Bottom line, the bottom line is that the husband does not have the right to resell the rights to her, his wife's um, uh, produce, uh, the property, uh, his wife's property's produce. And what's the reason? Uh, there's two possible reasons. Abaya said that because that third party will deteriorate um, the field over time. If any time it's not, you don't own the land, you're not going to treat it well. You're just going to use it for a short term. Uh, benefit. This is like, you know, when you lease a car only for a short term, three years, then you don't have to bother to change the oil because you're going to give it back anyway. I mean, you should still change the oil, but right, you're not going to take care of it as much as if you actually own it for long term. And therefore, uh, the, that's, that's the reason why the husband does not have a right to resell because it's not going to be good for the long term benefit of the land. Uh, whereas Rava says, no, it's because Mishum Rebach Beta that it's not helping out the house. Um, so this is following right, Rava's version here um, that he says he does nothing. Um, he it's not he does not it's not his right to sell it. It's not helping out the house. Okay, my Benai, what would be a practical difference between these two explanations for why it's not a valid resale? One would be land that's close to the town where they're, where they're living. The third, so the third party that's uh, over it, they know that there's oversight, right? The husband, uh, the wife, they're constantly uh, passing by there and they're going to see if this third party contractor is ruining the land. So they'll tell them, hey, you can't do that. You can't ruin the land. Um, you know, like if you're 
a lease company was constantly making sure you're taking care of the car, you'd take more care of it. Uh, it, it whereas, according to the, um, uh, so that would be fine. Whereas if, it's, if the concern is gain of the house, well, it's still not giving gain to the house. Or if the husband himself is a sharecropper um, and works the land, even though he sold the rights to someone else, right? So he sold the rights to someone else, but then he had, himself hired as a sharecropper. So since he's actually on premises, he will make sure that the land does not deteriorate. Even though he took one lump sum for the sale of the of these rights, um, and so the that money is not going to benefit the household directly because all the actual fruit is going to that third party lender. This is like sometimes people might sell their business to uh, to a bigger company, even though they stick around as one of the employees to actually run the business. So um, if, if in such a case, uh, we're again not worried that it's going to uh, deteriorate, but it's still not directly benefiting the uh, the house with its fruit. Uh, or if the husband takes the money and he's going to do business with it in such a way that will provide gain for the house. He's not going to use it just for his, you know, personal uh, vacation, uh, but instead he says, listen, I'm, I got a good deal from that third party who's going to take the work the land, and this lump sum money I'm going to use for uh, something that will, in fact, uh, benefit um, our, our family, our household directly, so then that would be fine for the second reason, but it would still not be okay according to Avaya's reason because they still will cause the land to deteriorate. We now come to the next Mishnah. We will um, learn the Mishnah today, but the Gemara on it on the next staff. Uh, this Mishnah deals with a complicated case of a Shomeret Yavam Shenaflula Nechasim. A woman is married to a man who dies without children and she falls to the deceased brother as a, as, as a woman who is awaiting Yibum. And now the estate of the deceased brother is somewhere in limbo. Um, if they were to do Chalitza, then that would be the same as a regular case of a, a woman who is widowed in which the estate would pay out her Ketubah um, from, and the estate would, the rest of the estate would be inherited by his children. Or, what he, or if he has no children, by his by his father or by his brothers, so they would inherit and they would pay out her ketubah in the, the full full amount, um, and in the normal way. However, if they end up doing yibum, then the estate gets transferred here to the brother who is also the inheritor, and uh, she will not get a payout at this point because uh, basically the second uh, brother is continuing in a way the marriage of the first so uh, the um, estate does not uh, does not um, pay out the ketuvah in full, uh, but what it does pay is subject to a machloket. So here we go. Modim During that in-between state, any land that she retained the title to, melog, the wife now has control over because the, the husband is dead, so he doesn't have control over it. She's not yet married to the Yavam, so she can sell it or give it away as if she's a single woman. And Bet Shemai and Bet Hillel would agree, just like they agreed regarding a single woman, even though they disagreed regarding a woman who is post-Kiddushin, 
who where um, uh, Betilel said she should not sell it. But here the this attachment to the Yavam is even less than a kiddushin attachment, according to him, and she can control it now. Meta, if she dies during that in between period before any ibum or a chalitza is done, what do they do with, on the one hand, the amount of the ketuba? This would be the cash value of the 200 zoos plus any additional cash value that uh, that that are in there and what do you do with the land the land that she holds holds a title to um that that she brought into the marriage and that she retains rights to after the marriage there's an additional uh category of um other property that's nixe son barzel that she brought into the marriage but she takes out a fixed amount um, so that will be yet another category that's part of her ketubah. So what happens with that is subject to a machloket. Bet Shammai Omerim, Yachleku Yoresheha Baal, Aim Yoresheha Av. Bet Shammai says they split it because this is uh, in limbo. It's not clear if it belongs to her. If it belongs, um, if the kituvah payment that's coming to her would belong to her, um, as if the husband died without a yibum, if they did chalitza, or if it goes to the inheritors, uh, since it may very well continue into the next marriage if they did yibum, and therefore those uh, that inherit the husband, meaning the brother, will split it with those who inherit the father, meaning the bride's father goes back to her family. They split it evenly. What exactly are they splitting evenly is a sugya and masechet yevamot, if this applies to everything, all categories or some categories. Now, Betilel omrim, nechasim bechezkatan. Betilel says each category of items is different. Regarding the nechseh son barzel that she brings in and that are assessed at a given value, that remains in its place. What does remain in its place mean? Is also not clear, subject to machloket and baba batra. It might mean that since the husband was holding on to that, so it remains in the husband's estate and goes to the brother. But it could mean the opposite. The cash value of the, uh, of the ketubah, since uh, she died, uh, so she doesn't collect it. And so that goes to the inheritors of the husband, meaning it goes to the brother. In, in general, when a, a, when a woman dies first, then um, that cash value payout doesn't happen. But the property that she owns the title to, that goes back to her, her family, to her father, or whoever will inherit her father, um, that is retained. Okay, that's Betilel. Now, the, um, uh, the deceased brother left cash, uh, some cash as part of his 
um, in part part of his estate. Um, and let's say they do yibum now. Now that they did yibum, that that inheritance um, uh, it goes to the brother. The brother will the, the live brother will control it, but. Her kitubah payment, eventually, whenever it will be paid, is paid from his estate. Therefore, the husband cannot just take the estate for himself. Um, the estate is devoted to, has a lien on it to pay for the kitubah. And this is above and beyond the general responsibility of the first husband when he was alive. When he was alive, then um, his, his, his estate, uh, his land, uh, his property is leaned to the uh, to his wife to pay the kituvah, although he can sell his land, but just when he sells it, there'll be a lien and she can come and recollect it. When the husband dies and it goes to the Yavam, so we want to protect her more, even more, and so really all of his estate, uh, even the cash, becomes devoted to paying her kitubah, and the husband cannot sell any of the property, he can enjoy the fruits, um, but he cannot even sell it. Okay, so the, the cash value, cash that she brings in, he has to go and buy uh, land with it. So that it will be stable. He cannot um, just uh, deplete that cash. Although he gets the benefit of the produce because he is now taking care of her and the household. Same thing with fruits that are not detached from the land. He has to sell them, buy land with it. And then he can benefit from the income of that land. Hamechubarin bakarka. If there's um, uh, the, uh, the hus deceased husband has land with fruit on it, uh, that land certainly uh, he has to keep, and he can benefit from it. How about the status of the produce that's on it? This is subject to a machlok. It's similar to the first Mishnah in the Perek Amar Meir. Shamin otan kamehen yafin beperot, vechamehen yafin belo perot, vamotadi lakach ben karka, ochel perot. So we get take this land, we assess it. How much is it worth with the fruit that's currently on it? How much will it be worth without the fruit? Uh, um, on it, and so you take that amount, and he, the husband, will take uh, cash out of his own pocket, and you buy land with that amount, and then he can take the that produce eventually when it gets harvested, and all the future produce uh, that it produces. That's to be Meir, who says that the thing that the whatever is attached there belongs to the wife. <clears throat> So Chachamim say, no, whatever is attached to the land, he gets to keep it. That's not. Uh, that's just like the uh, same as detached from the land. He gets to uh, take that first produce. The first crop. Anything that is detached to the ground, detached from the ground. So that's kind of in limbo. Who does it? Who does it belong to? So whoever gets to it first, if he goes and collects it first, he gets it because it's in limbo. So it's not clear whose it is. He gets it. If she goes and she she collects it first, then it's hers. Not that she can take it home, but rather that it's like cash that she brings in to the marriage, and he has to buy land with it, and then he can enjoy the fruit of that land. Kenasa. Once the Yabam marries her, he is responsible for everything, like a wife, he has to provide for her, the same deal as a regular wife. Except that the payment of the Ketubah comes from 
the first husband's property. The Avam does not have to use his own property as long as there are funds from the original husband. He does not have to spend his own money because after all, he never uh, wanted to marry this woman. He was uh, was uh, forced upon him as a mitzvah to do so uh, so he can is kind of continuing in his in his uh, deceased uh, brother's place and so he can use that to um, he must uh, use that to pay her ketubah which does also bring it with it limitations on how he can spend uh, n- and not sell that land here's what a husband second the, the avam cannot do he cannot say let me see how much is this ketubah going to be end up, uh, end up being add everything up it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars he cannot say listen here's a hundred thousand dollars I'm putting it on the table right as separate and then the rest of it all the land and everything I'm gonna I'm gonna just keep for myself and do whatever I want he cannot do that rather all of the estate is uh, mortgaged as a lien to on it to pay the ketuvah so that it will be there for long term and that's gonna be something stable that's true not only for the Avam, but for any regular marriage, a husband cannot say to his wife, uh, listen, the amount of the Kutubah, right, eventually when it will get paid, here it is. Here's a check for the, for the entire value, and then that's it. I don't want you to have a lien on my property. No, that's not stable enough. Instead, she in fact does have a lien on his property. Gersha. If the Avam divorces uh, his wife, the Avama en la la ketubah. So she um, gets her, she gets the payment of, of the ketubah, and once that's paid out, anything else that's left over in her, her first husband's estate, the Avam gets to keep. If he um, remarries her, which he's permitted to do, he didn't do chalitza. If he did chalitza, he, can never, he can't marry her ever. But if he married her and divorced, then he can marry her again. But then she, she no longer has any special rights to the first husband's estate. Um, but rather, she just has the new ketuvah that they will write upon that second marriage. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.